here, it's solely because of the parents that this child is dead. When I met him in the Corcoran State Prison and realized that he was every bit of 6 feet 10 inches tall and 260 plus pounds, he became that much more monstrous in my vision both in front of me and in my mind that someone that large would take advantage of a child. Hi there, and welcome to the very first episode of Gray Area. I'm Julie Reynolds Martinez, and for the last 15 years, I've worked as an investigative reporter specializing in criminal justice. Gray Area brings you true stories of some of the remarkable people I've met along the way, people who've been involved with laws or crime or the justice system or the idea of justice. But this is a show about all the ways justice is not black or white, and that's why I call it Gray Area. Today's story is about a lawyer, Gary Thielander. For years, I'd sit in courtrooms watching him prosecute child abusers and murderers, and I never saw him lose a case. So I wanted to interview him about how he does what he does and why he does what he does. Except when we finally sat down to do it, everything had changed. Act 1, Gary. So what do you want to know? I mean, you know, I was born in 1961 in a small stone cottage in Birdrip Park, England. <sighs> My father was cleaning fish with one hand and delivering me with the other. That's true. No, of course I'm not true. <laughs> okay. How about you tell me the truth? Uh, Gary Thielander. Um, I'm a prosecutor. Strike that. I was a prosecutor for the last 17 years in the state of California, both in Santa Cruz and Monterey counties. Quite frankly, if it's something could be done illegally, uh, I probably had a hand in prosecuting it at some level or the other. And right now, I'm currently engaged in the business of private defense work, specializing in criminal defense work uh, for those folks who find themselves on the wrong side of the law. Wait, what? Gary had no trouble reconciling the fact that he'd switched teams. See, at least in our region, Prosecutors and defenders act like they're from different planets. They'll both tell reporters like me that they're seeking the truth. But get them off the record, and prosecutors will tell you that defense attorneys are thug-huggers, bleeding hearts who don't care if our communities are overrun with crime. The defense lawyers will tell you all the DAs are fascists who want to lock up every brown kid in the country and throw away the key. For Gary... He had one close friend who he mentored, and this guy couldn't believe his hero was now helping people who broke the law. And I said, yeah, what else would I do? This is what I'm an expert at, is criminal work. Yeah, but you're an expert putting people away, not getting them off. I said, same coin. I then had to explain to him they have two sides. It took a while. And he was like, well, don't change. Don't become one of them. And I was like, dude, I is one of them. I think what he wanted to say was just don't become a fucking liar because I think he's one of the true believers that think they're all lying over there. He was taken aback. I mean, I get it. 
Ideals are one thing. Standing up for the violent, the cruel, and the deviant is another. So how on earth did Gary get here? Act two, Christina. Christina is a woman who came home deeply traumatized from her tour serving as a US Marine in Iraq. Besides surviving the terror of the war, some of her fellow soldiers had sexually assaulted her. Later, while Christina was struggling to reintegrate and dealing with complex PTSD, she got married and gave birth to a child. Her husband started taking her prescription painkillers and then he began giving those pills to their son to get the boy to fall asleep. In October 2013, at 18 months old, Christina's son died of an opiate overdose. The law caught up with the couple, and both parents were arrested and charged with felony child abuse. Prosecutors described the death as deliberate. The child's father eventually confessed that it was his act that killed the boy. But Christina still faced serious charges for not stopping the deadly abuse, for not saving her own son's life. At the county jail, she was locked in solitary confinement to protect her from other inmates. But some of the guards taunted her. They called her a baby killer. Gary had barely reinvented himself as a defense lawyer, and he was hired to take on Christina's case. He spent months working at a plea bargain. He fought for Christina to get counseling and treatment instead of six years in prison. And the prosecutors ultimately agreed to the deal. I sat in on what was supposed to be a routine hearing. The plea bargain was already worked out. But on the day of Christina's sentencing, Judge Carrie Panetta was having none of it. I'm very concerned. A child is dead. And I have to be honest, after reading the probation report, I'm not inclined to grant your, your client probation. Um, I'm still concerned that we, I still don't know the full picture. Everyone's not being honest. The whole plea deal unraveled right there. If I might. Yes, go ahead. I, I, think, I think it is troublesome because it is the death of an 18-month-old child. Um, I think it's troublesome because whenever we have a case where a child dies, it, it shocks our conscience and it invokes in us a sense of sympathy and loss for that child and a measurement. Well, especially when the death's preventable. Absolutely, Your Honor. No one's suggesting otherwise. Here it's solely because of the parents that this child is dead. I watched Gary stand and struggle to find the words, any words, that might save Christina from prison. There was something rebellious in his voice as he began to challenge the judge. At this point, Your Honor, everyone who's really paid, strike that, everyone who's dug in and had time to really reflect over the facts of this case have come to the conclusion um, that it's time for Ms. Carney to get back on the track for the recovery um, from her service to her country. It's time for her to get back on recovery from the traumatic um, violation of other members of the combat troop of her during her service to that country. And quite frankly, um, whether it's popular or not to say, the loss of her child is a traumatic injury that, that despite her poor portion of responsibility for is still a loss that she never certainly intended or anticipated. Um, and she's had to go through that grieving process locked in a cage, being called a baby killer and a monster, 
by the people who are there to protect her from the other people who are there for their criminal acts. Um, I think the fact that she is able to stand here and answer the questions of the court to the best of her ability are an astounding measure of her strength that is inside her that she needs to get back in touch with to begin this recovery process. I couldn't tell if his speech had any effect, but Judge Panetta did something almost unheard of. She ordered all of us out of the courtroom so she could think about what Gary just said. Back in court, I wasn't able to get my recorder close enough to capture the judge's voice clearly, but we all heard Judge Panetta tell Christina that Gary's words made her change her mind. But especially uh, your attorney has changed the court's mind. That same afternoon, Christina would be free. And to her, that thought was almost as terrifying as going to prison. Act Three, The Abyss. We're sitting in Gary's office in Salinas, California, and I ask him to tell me how he got here. How did a man who spent two decades putting criminals in prison now justify setting them free? What was it that made Gary see both sides of the coin? But I'm distracted by this large wooden carving behind his head of a family of bears. It's the kind of art that would maybe hang over a bar in Wyoming, and my eyes are always drawn to it whenever I'm here. Gary's eyes are also drifting, and I catch them landing on the man in the black and white photo on his desk. It's his dad. He was handsome, he was good looking, he was athletic. In fact, actually, He's right here on my desk with us. He smiles at me, and that brave smile looking out into the sunshine, which I imagine, and I know for a fact, is at a beach somewhere in, I believe, Japan. Uh, one of the rare times that he was caught being that happy. And there's a reason he sits on my desk facing me when I talk to all the sad people that I talk to in doing what I do. Sad people, frightened people, angry people. And he reminds me of the fact that every single person sitting in that chair means me no harm, that they need me, and that I need to be responsible to them and for them uh, the way he would expect me to treat any human being, regardless of who they are, what they're accused of, what in fact they have done. And that was a big thing for my father, justice. And one time, we were driving to the city of Portland and I was sitting in the back of this old Plymouth Fury 3 on this big camping trip. And I hadn't really seen homeless people before. I didn't have much recollection of it at that time. And we're driving and I'm looking at these people who were sitting with their backs against a wall of a bank in the sunshine, uh, drinking out of bags, just prototypical silhouette, maybe five or six fellas. I, I yelled out the window, you a bunch of hobos? And before I knew it, my dad's hand had miraculously found the side of my head from the driver's seat and snapped me back. And I've never been before or since touched my face in anger. And he said, you don't know enough to say anything about the way they're living their lives. Until you walk in that man's shoes and you've lived his life and you've been through his strife and you know and understand the dynamics of his existence, you have no goddamn right to yell a comment at that human being who you have just now injured. And they're going to hear that word of that child calling them a hobo until they don't anymore. And you have no way of knowing 
how long that will be for them to feel bad about what you just said to them. And I guess Gary's father had no way of knowing how long his words would stay with his son. My mother and father had separated uh, when I was 18. Uh, I had stayed with my father. And so this final week, he, he picks his fight with me, and it gets pretty argumentative, and he decides that I should go live with my mother. And what I now, of course, know is he was clearing the dock, getting me out of the way so that he could take his life. So the last time I saw him, he, uh, last time I saw him, I had come by the house and he came out the driveway and saw me and he, he was wearing a t-shirt with, uh, with that V collar and he walks out to me and he gave me a big hug and a pat on the back and told me that he loved me very much. And he hung on to the hug longer than was comfortable, and I didn't quite get it, and I hugged him back, and then he let go and said goodbye. It was a hug, it was a touch too long, um, but then I relaxed into it and accepted it, and I realized it was his, his asking for forgiveness for, for really starting a fight four or five days earlier. And what I didn't realize, and the part that really hurts when I think about it is that he was saying goodbye, but he didn't get or didn't allow me to say goodbye back because I didn't know it was goodbye. I didn't know it was goodbye. And what makes me feel bad about it is I might have made a greater effort to impress upon him how much I loved him. And I feel bad that he didn't get that from me at that last moment. He had suffered from uh, what they used to call manic depression, which I guess is now called bipolar. I, I think, in a way, the world didn't answer back his, his call for human decency. I think he was disappointed. I know he was disappointed. I think he was disappointed in the way uh, the world was turning. I think he was disappointed in the way of his own existence. So, throughout his career, Gary has dealt with people who a lot of us would call monsters, the worst of the worst. I didn't want to be around this human being. Like this one serial child molester. When I met him in the Corcoran State Prison and realized that he was every bit of 6 feet 10 inches tall and 260 plus pounds, he became that much more monstrous in my vision both in front of me and in my mind that someone that large would take advantage of a child. The guy's wrists were shackled to his chair, but Gary leaned in close and instinctively reached for his hand and shook it. And as he completed this normal social gesture with a head nod, he noticed tears streaming down the man's face. And it occurred to me at that moment that whatever other things this man might have been, 
he was still a human being. And that was probably the only friendly touch that he received in quite some time. And he was emotionally and physically overwhelmed by that touching. And that changed forever my ability to lump any particular person in a particular category and to deny their humanity. Gary tells me there were times his fellow prosecutors looked at him with disgust when he reached out to greet a sex offender in court. It didn't seem to matter that he was about to send the man to prison for years. These apparent contradictions all go back to his dad, Gary says. He had two driving things. Is, is, is number one is for me to be a truth teller. Um, the second thing was is no one should be a bully, which serves me well as a prosecutor going back to that because what I saw myself doing is protecting people who couldn't protect themselves, you know, in domestic violence and child sexual assault and adult sexual assault. And those are the crimes that, that I would, would get. I, I enjoyed prosecuting those cases. And it didn't mean that the person who committed the assault was going to have to go to prison, but they were going to have to have an opportunity to change and mend their ways. Someone who beat his wife on Thursday doesn't have to beat her every Thursday the rest of his life. He can change. He can learn that that's not the way to do it. But I don't think as an entire class of individuals, any behavior pattern is irredeemable. If I did, I'd join my father. And maybe he came to that conclusion. I don't know. Act 4, The Trauma That Unites Us. I'm inside a car with Christina's friends in the parking lot of the county jail and we're waiting for her to walk through the razor wire gate. Her trial is over, and Gary's victory in court is going to allow her to attend a rehab program instead of spending the next six years in prison. Here to support her are fellow female veterans who've also survived trauma and addiction. Suddenly, Christina steps out into the last rays of sunlight, and the gravity of the moment hits me. She has spent more than two years in solitary confinement and is suddenly walking free but I'm guessing that the death of her son is something she'll never be able to walk away from. I ask her how she's taking it all, this abrupt change in her surroundings, her return to a world without walls. It's nerve-wracking to be out and around people because we um, saw maybe one or two people that we didn't know a month, you know, we didn't have a social worker or anything that would come back there and talk to us. I think I was on the yard a total of probably six times in uh, almost two years. Yeah. I was put in isolation and called a baby killer by the police or the cop deputies, and it was devastating. But, you know, it's um, somewhere where you don't show emotions and you don't show weakness, and it's a very difficult, hard world to go to when you're not used to it. It needs to be told greatly. There are a lot of people with mental health problems, severe mental health problems, mm-hmm. uh, that are not being treated and then they're put with people who don't have as much of a issue and it only um, makes it worse like for me you know like you know, just the things that i witnessed in the county jail were it was just as bad as iraq christina's memories of iraq and her rape and her child's death and the jail and the heckling of the guards could never be erased and gary knows that freeing her from a prison sentence is only the beginning that she's standing at the edge of an abyss when i re-entered from iraq 
into the civilian population, there was no reentry program for me. So now um, I'm coming out of an incarceration, like isolation. So hopefully all these programs that they talk about are actually going to happen and the fulfillment will be there. I'm still a little bit tentative because I have seen it not happen. But I know I have a strong support team, so I'm you know, looking forward to seeing the good that the VA is going to be able to do and help with the veterans. I'm back in Gary's office, and a friend of mine asks him an odd question. Does he ever speak to his dead father? The night before my son was born, I purposely had a conversation with my father when I said, I have to put you away now. I had spent the last 15 or 14 years on visiting with my father in my head, and, and, and my life was focused. It was just, it was just constant little things that, that I would think about and wonder about. And so I said, look, I have to put you away now. There's a new Thielander coming, and I have to raise him, and I have to make him the focus and I can't spend any more of my mental energy or emotional chattel on you. So I don't want to hurt your feelings, but I got a bigger, more important job than worrying about you, and that is worrying about my son, which is what I have done pretty much ever since. And the primary focus of my life is seeing to it that my son has everything he needs, all the tools he needs to construct himself the way that he wants to construct himself. So he, he can be the real theater, that he can be the best of us yet. Other than him being lazier than me. So far all signs are good. You'd think you guys would come with tissue. At Gary's desk, his father's face looks off toward a horizon we can't see. A much more maternal image looms in that carving on the wall. I have to ask him about those bears. Did he steal them from a bar in Cheyenne? Maybe he won them in a poker game. The bears were here. The bears were here? The bears were in the office. I just assumed those were your personal bears. No, but I've adopted them. Um, I, I just love the imagery of what I assume is a mama bear looking over her cub. Um, I suppose it could be a father bear, but father bears eat the cubs more likely than not. So I'm going to go with mother bear. All right. Um, I like the fact that clearly the cub has ventured out on his own and is now returning to the safety of his mom. Uh, to me, mom is laying down to illustrate lack of concern for his whereabouts, but is certainly keen to his arrival and pleased to see him return safely from wherever he's been. And I just think it's sort of symbolic of what I like to think is of what I've done in my life, which is protect those people I can protect. I'm glad I asked. So the mama bear's the good attorney. No, the mama bear's a good mama bear. A good attorney's a mama bear. Okay. <laughs> I, think, I think it's better that the attorney become the protector. And it doesn't mean that, it doesn't mean that bear is gonna live forever won't make mistakes. No, I, uh, I love that thing. It turns out Christina isn't doing well on probation. She's missed some of her therapy appointments and Gary isn't even sure where she is. But at least he knows she's no longer in solitary, taunted by inmates and guards. I wonder if he regrets releasing her into the world. 
Nah, he says, he'd do it again. It makes me think, do we really always have to choose sides when it comes to justice? Can we find ways to keep people safe without giving up hope for the Christinas of the world? In the end, I realized Gary hadn't switched teams at all. It's just who he is, just part of seeing the two sides of the coin. For Gray Area, I'm Julie Reynolds Martinez. I'm not going to cry in your radio show. <laughs> I'm not trying to get you to cry. <laughs> this episode of Gray Area was reported, written, and produced by me. Mara Reynolds was the assistant producer and co-writer. Special thanks to Krista Almondson of KAZU-FM for awesome editorial help. And also to Emma Wynn-Jones. Gray Area is sponsored by Voices of Monterey Bay. The music for this episode was by Komiku, William Gardner, and Lobo Loco. Thank you, Free Music Archive. Artist and song details are included in our show notes at grayarearadio.com and voicesofmontereybay.org. Gray Area's theme song was written, performed, and recorded by John Reynolds. So many Reynoldses, I know. Coming to you from Nepotism Incorporated, this is Gray Area.